They say a movie gets written three times, right? The first time is the script. The second time is the edit. And the third time is the soundtrack or the score. Today, we're talking about the second time, the edit. And I've said it before, and you've probably heard it before. Editing is sort of the invisible art. I'm George Edelman, editor-in-chief at No Film School. This is the No Film School podcast. And today, I'm talking to editor Lee Smith. He's an Oscar winner, and he has edited countless classics that you've seen and loved, almost certainly. The Dark Knight movies, Inception, so there's a ton of Christopher Nolan. They've collaborated a bunch, but also Sam Mendes on recently Empire of Light, which we talk about, but also 1917, Dunkirk. His career includes big movies, small movies, and by small, I mean character study, but also the biggest, most successful epics of the last few decades. And also, he has on his resume one of my personal favorites. And we talk about that at length, which is really fun. And I'm going to not spoil it here in the intro so you can hear about what he has to say about it. And just there's some incredible stories in here. And he's just a great interview. So this one was a lot of fun. But I think the important thing is that we get into a lot of the craft of editing, what makes it work, and how often that can just be unnoticed if you're doing a good job. That's sort of the beautiful, tragic element of it as a craft. And as such a critical piece of what we end up seeing. As audiences, we attribute good or bad things to various places or misattribute. Lee talks about all the ways that you handle notes and feedback and feeling your way through the process and just delivering things that, like I said, vary so much in scale. So if you've seen and loved any of these movies, you're going to really enjoy this. If you haven't, somehow you've missed all these huge movies in the last few decades, but you're still going to enjoy this because you're going to learn about the man who helped create them. So here we go. Lee Smith, No Film School Podcast. So happy to have you. So excited to do this. Right. Me too. So I guess we'll start with this because we're going to talk about Empire of Light, but I want to talk about some of your other films too. Empire of Light is different in a lot of ways than a lot of the things you've edited. Can you tell me, I guess, what's different and what's the same when you're editing something like this that is so character-driven versus some of these things you've done that are so big, where the canvas is so vast and it's you know, The Dark Knight or Dunkirk or 1917 or Inception or, you know, some of these very large scale projects versus something like this that is more about a couple human beings in a smaller space. Yeah, I think um, this takes me back to the early days in my career working on Australian films with, you know, more modest budgets. And, you know, that normally tends to be films about, you know, the human condition and set in contemporary times. I mean, this one was a period film, but it was basically a character-driven film, you know, shorter schedule all around, but still fascinating to work on from my standpoint because it was such a simple character-driven film. I haven't done that in a while, and it was really enjoyable. Was it different? Does it was one of the things is is there a different amount of coverage you get? Is there a different because you say schedule is shorter? So the first thing I think is maybe you just have less material to look at. I mean, certainly you're not working with VFX teams the same way, but exactly. um, 
No, exactly. My, um, in fact, we didn't even have a visual effects editor on this one. We, my associate editor, Pierce, did all of the prep and on the visual effects, and in fact, did some of the simple visual effects work himself. There was still a reasonable amount of visual effects work, but very different to. For example, you know, Inception or, or Dunkirk or any of those films. Also, this film was shot, I think, in 12 weeks instead of 26 weeks, which is more what I'm used to. As far as coverage goes, no, there's still, you know, plenty of coverage. It's, it's, it's the same kind of thing as cutting a bigger film just in a shorter amount of time and with obviously less complexity in the visual world. But you know, the the beauty of having Roger Deakins at the helm of the camera was that <laughs> every image speaks a thousand words and, and having a superior cast of A-list actors just meant you didn't really need a thousand takes because you were getting it in, you know, three or four takes and and they were just such a great cast. It was a pleasure to go through each of those takes. No such thing as a bum take, really. Yeah, so that kind of leads to another question, which is you've worked with Roger a number of times. You've, you've edited things he's shot a number of times, Sam Raimi a number of times, Christopher Nolan. When you're working with talent like this, and I assume you're getting every image looks pretty good and interesting and every performance, like you said, every take is good. Does it become a question of trying to, how do you choose among good ones that are different? What are those yeah. kinds of, you know, or, or, or is it more like they're all kind of in the same spirit? No, I just think the choices are more subtle. It's, you're not working with, a, with just like, is it a black or white version of a take? It's a much more, you know, detailed and subtle thing, which is also <clears throat> way more interesting to me than, you know, editing something where it's like, oh, you know, lucky we got one good read on that line. Um, so it's it's more complicated in the fact that the actors and actresses are giving such a good performance that you really do have to concentrate on choices and and just shaping and steering the film. Yeah, I would say these films are harder to edit because, like I said, if it was a lesser film, the choices are simple. It's like you watch the dailies and you go, well, there's the good take and everyone else just is not good. That's what I have to work with. Let's have a go. It's probably uh, been a while since you've had one of those, <laughs> given the caliber of things you're doing. But <laughs> there you are 100% correct. <laughs> when you talk about crafting a performance, I think this is one of the most interesting and under-understood or less understood things about being an editor. There's so much responsibility to helping whatever the performer did convey across the story and and molding it and identifying what they're trying to do scene to scene. Can you just talk a little bit about about doing that or finding what they do or talking with the director about, oh, I see, because this film, Empire of Light, has some incredible performances at the center of it, but so do many of your your films. Is there any point where you're like, ooh, I think if we do that, we're changing it too much or, you know, we want to, you know, like you're orchestrating something that's raw but powerful. Yeah, I think the thing with editing 
you know, a lot of it is to do with pace and, and what character to be on because obviously when it's filmed, the camera's generally only pointing in one direction. And then the choices that you make as to where you put the weight on what line, whether the reaction is more powerful than the line or whether you can impose a slightly longer pause between something that's said to let it let it land even harder. There's just a million things in editing that you can do to tweak anything. And when we talk about shaping performance, I have the luxury of watching the completed film over and over and completed scenes over and over. And, you know, the actors, when they're delivering that performance, are really working in real time, one at a time, trying things, pushing things in a certain direction. Some actors will give you incredible continuity between takes and some will give you just this radical swing left and right of what the character might or might not be doing. And that in itself is fascinating because it's not that either of them are wrong or right. It's that one of them is is the way that the film needs to move through that narrative journey. And really, you can only know that in post-production. It's very difficult to uh, understand that in the moment. And I've had many directors sit next to me and they're saying, you know, on that particular day, we thought it all went horribly wrong. Interesting. And it to be a really nice scene. And I said, yes, that's because I'm not experiencing what went wrong with Interesting. You. Yeah. You know? I mean, you, you, you mentioned something about the, uh, the way that you have so many directions you can go in with a pause or a beat. And it's like one of the oldest or the first things you learn about editing is with a cut to something else, you can completely change what the meaning is of the moment yeah. or what the actors experience or what the, the viewer's going to experience. So you have a great deal of power to kind of alter meaning. Do you yeah. talk about that with the director? Like, this is what we intended, but we're in a different place now. This is what we got. Does it change sometimes dramatically? Yeah, it depends on the film and the evolution of the film because. You know, they say a film is written three times, you know, right. all the shoot during the shoot and in the post. But the post and is the last one. <laughs> That's the one we all see. <laughs> the one where you really better get it. You know, <laughs> yeah. right. And we do have kind of the luxury of being in a very calm, well, I'm not saying all cutting rooms are calm. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> environment where you can you know, watch something and think about it in the quiet and then make decisions how to steer and re-steer the film. And then you've got, you add the complexity of the studios and the um, screenings and, you know, all of those things are painful yet productive. You know, nobody likes test screening films, I don't think, but you like the fact that you have a chance to discover things about the film that maybe you just didn't notice or your involvement, you know, early on has precluded you from understanding that something is confusing or... Right, like fresh eyes. Yeah. And some of my favourite things are solving those situations because that is a real Rubik's Cube when you get thrown something that no one was expecting. And you have to solve that issue. And sometimes it's a very easy solve because you pinpoint the problem. 
And sometimes it's a very difficult solve because it's not in the DNA of the movie and you're trying to shift the DNA to get a bigger group of people to like the film. That's well said because it's sort of like sometimes the footage just doesn't exist for the specific thing, right? You're talking about people understanding things and you've made a couple large-scale movies that have very complicated ideas and they have to take an audience through a lot. And and, and sometimes it's emotionally, but sometimes it's just understanding the facts and of the universe we're in. Is there a good way that you have of knowing, like, do you have some kind of compass you know, when you're in the middle of all of it and it makes sense to you and you're, you're in the weeds, but, but how do you kind of create a compass to like pull back and, and see the big picture and, and kind of understand if it's working? Well, I think you just trust yourself. It's, you know, a lot of the really complex films I did with Chris Nolan, I think you can only trust your own instincts. And I think um, he gauged some of having me working on the film, as he said, was someone who has, like I am a lover of most films. There's very few films that I won't watch. I'm also someone who doesn't like to be confused or misunderstand something. So I can only go by what I feel. Now, having said that, you know, you are talking about some of the most complicated films ever made. (laughs) Yeah. Yes. laugh with Chris saying, you know, the whole point is I have to understand it. And then we have a shot at normal mortals being able to understand it. (laughs) Yes. um, But, you know, with films, the other thing that's fascinating is I have worked on films where I've had someone come out and gush about the film and love it and completely misunderstood the film. Yeah. Yes. But it really doesn't matter because that's their enjoyment and their takeaway. I mean, my job isn't to then brush their world and say, well, that's not really what we were doing or what we said. It was like, there's no right or wrong. As you stand in front of a painting, you either like it or you don't. I can't convince you to like it. I just hope that you do. And I, I, like a lot of people, I think, in the industry, I get a great thrill out of people enjoying the work. I don't really want to make stuff that people don't like and don't see. I don't, sure. And they get, I there. Want- it's true, sometimes we only get to see these things once. And when they're complicated, we only take away so much information. But if there's some kind of emotional through line or something, it sometimes yeah. it resonates regardless. You know, I, I want to ask you about... Um, other things you've seen, because you mentioned seeing a lot of films or being willing to, that, that you see in editing, things that when you see them, you really like them. Are there any things that like come to mind when you're like, oh, I love the way that editor worked on that? Or those, there are things that you identify as like, because editing is easily an invisible art, you know? But I imagine as an editor, you're kind of noticing it or thinking about it sometimes when you're a viewer. Sometimes it, it's normally the only time I think edit, about editing when I'm watching a film is when the film's not working. Yeah, probably. It right. really is the only time my mind will start to go, eh, that's interesting. You know, like you just start to analyze. And I do love watching all films. I like watching films that fail miserably at the box office yeah. as well because nobody sets out to make a bad movie. You want to try and get in 
like in the education of being in this industry is to work out why things don't work, why they don't resonate with an audience or why they don't resonate with me. Some films are irredeemably wrong in my opinion, but, and again, that's a personal thing. It's like the subject matter is impossible for me to like. So if someone says, what did you think of that film? I'm like, well, I was bored shitless and I wish (laughs) I got that two hours back. But that's a fair response. It's not that the yes. film necessarily bad. It was just that particular story had no relevance to me. And whilst I can appreciate the craft level, I I don't know what else to say other than I can't imagine someone pitching this idea and they actually made it. And yeah. In general terms, a lot of those films don't see much of the light of day. Right. Uh, but, you know, it's also exciting to watch anything and everything. And, and you know, I love Academy Time because I get all these films and access and I watch films that I've never heard of that I just click on and, and some of them are you feel that they're refined and you realize everybody likes this film. <laughs> Do you ever think about some of those things that you've, You've diagnosed, like you said, like, why don't things work? Because it's part of being in the industry is recognizing the pattern, sort of like some things work, some things don't. Are there things that you kind of carry with you that are like, I just kind of have learned that certain things aren't going to resonate with audiences? Because even though no one sets out to fail, people set out to resonate with as many people as possible. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's a, it's a industry where, I don't understand if you ever hear anyone say, I don't care how many people see my film. I just want to do this film. And I'm like, okay, that's weird. (laughs) It's like, you know, it's you're making something for the cinema experience of a group of people who don't know one another to walk into a darkened room and spend a couple of hours. If I think they're not going to like it, I don't know what our point is. I want them to be you know, challenged or, I mean, the main thing for me is emotion is you want to be emotionally engaged and you want that to drive you through a film. And I think, you know, any film that's spectacular, but I have zero emotional connection is the biggest fail of all because you just go, it's a shit ton of work and I just don't care about anybody. And yes, that's the secret sauce is, you know, you really need to care about those characters and you want them, you want to stay with them and you want to be with them. And that was back to Empire of Light that I could have spent time in that cinema listening to Toby, you know, wax lyrical about the projectors and, you know, sit in their canteen area of it listening. So in a strange way, editing a movie like that, where it really is all character forward, is yeah. easier to accomplish those goals than than one of these bigger tentpole pieces where it's easy to lose characters. It's like almost hard to keep them relevant and human because they're amidst the landscape of yeah. machinery. <laughs> oh, I know. I mean, really, but but equally on a film like Empire of Light, imagine it with you know not great actors and not great yeah. dialogue and yeah. not a cinematographer like. Roger, not a director like Sam Mendes. Yeah. You just you'd be watching what would just be a kind of a weird, ordinary film. It's like that Seinfeld episode that they ran where they 
showed you the alternate casting. Yes, yes. Oh, oh, yes. (laughs) Yes, so dependent. Yes. (laughs) When you've worked on, you've, you've, you've also, you've seen the way the big tentpoles in the VFX world has evolved. You know, the way something like Master and Commander, which is a movie I adore, was done is completely different, right? The scale of it, and it was such a challenge at the time. And now things like that are relatively to what it was then easier to do, but people are reaching farther and trying to do even harder things. So you've kind of watched this evolution from film to digital, from the VFX, like all of it. How does it impact the work you do? Or do you just try and stay focused on things that you know work? You know, like it, it just, it seems so hard to imagine contending with the constant changes. Yeah. It's, um, I think, that's a good point. It's just years and years of working and seeing what works and seeing what doesn't work and being in meetings and discussing things. And you kind of get to this point where I feel I'm at now where it's wonderful to have so much knowledge, if it doesn't sound too arrogant, but you know, that you've, and it's not that you're rehashing it because everything changes. There's new challenges on every film and you learn something on every film. You're always surprised by something you thought was a slam dunk and it's not. You know, that's the wonderful thing about filmmaking is you can't get cocky because, you know, you you work on a film and you're sitting there thinking, oh, this is it, man. This is it. <laughs> we have now that you screen it and the audience will sit there and go, yeah, it's okay. Yeah. <laughs> and you're like, what? This is incredible. But I think, you know, from Master and Commander, which was my first biggest visual effects slash action slash character-driven film, I have watched the evolution of, of everything changing at a rate. But it's all the same. It's just if you've got a good idea and you've got a and you've got a good visual sense and a narrative sense, nothing's changed because you can still hear a dumb idea pitched in a modern world. <laughs> yeah. You can still hear a genius idea pitched. It's just, I mean, you could also say that what makes Master and Commander great, all that stuff is fun and amazing. The, the battles, yeah. everything. But those two characters oh, yeah. and their performances are what that. carry you, you know? No, that's, I mean, that is like literally my defining film of my career. You know, funnily enough, I'm going out uh, for dinner tonight with the director of said film. Oh, Peter, yeah. (laughs) And uh, yeah, I mean, it was just that experience was literally everything to me because it, it, it it rolled me from working on reasonably big projects and small projects into the world of the boundless project. Yeah. And what was wonderful about it was it was boundless yet rooted in just the extreme detail of a character-driven film. And and that was exactly what I was talking about. Who would you rather spend time with? I wanted to be on that boat. Yes. You know, I, I still want to. I Tell him tonight. That we need more. (laughs) We still need more. (laughs) I'm waiting. Before I started on that film, I was working in a film in Germany and I was running around German bookstores trying to get the last of the Patrick O'Brien books because I read all 20 of them prior to starting because I was 
so in love with the idea of the film and and I love the fact that the film was based on real letters from real seamen at this at that stage and and Peter has this great realism about where he shoots and what he shoots and and I remember being in Mexico and I went out called the little boat we were on the um, fox tank in Mexico and called the little boat out to it and stepped onto the ship and it was built with such detail it was on a gimbal but it's full scale and everywhere you look you were on a real ship it was bizarre. And I said, do they normally build shit like this for films? And he goes, no, because you normally only know which way the camera's going to point. But he said, I don't know where we're going to point the camera, so we're going to build everything perfectly. And I'm walking around because I'd spent a fair bit of time on sailing, and I'm just looking at it going, every rope, everything was accurate. And then we had all these experts that were these crazy guys that were <laughs> replica boats around the world, all had the guy who knew everything about setting a powder charge in a cannon, you know, yeah. firing, you know, the correct rifle. And they're all wandering around the set. And these are the strangest cats you'd ever made. <laughs> and I just thought, it's cool. All they want to do is talk about gunpowder and sailing, you know. <laughs> Do you think that in some way that effort seeps into the finished product and oh. creates some, it's, it feels like that love and that focus is communicated through the work. Oh, and, yeah. and, 110%. Yeah. The fact that the sound guys, you know, we went out and fired cannons. They, they did. They fired grape shot, which I never knew what that was until I looked it up which is, you know, just shrapnel that the ships had lying around to shred the sails. And they had microphones set up to record exactly that. And so that film was just full of this insane detail. If you want to be transported back in time, that's what you have to do. And the love of that film was second to none as far as the amount of detail that people went to to make sure that it was perfect in every way. It's very and, hard to get people on board to, to do those kinds of movies, right? Yeah, it's just a whole load of passion. And when it all meets in the middle, I mean, look, that film, when it came out, it, it took, I think Tom Rothman was telling me 10 years later, he slapped me on the leg. We were watching another film that he was at Fox and, and he said, you know that film? He said, it finally made his money back. But <laughs> <laughs> that was his passion project. And I said, yeah, and that's the film we'll all take to our graves with us. That will be the one we remember. And he just, and it was like, you bet. It's like yeah. you, you make films to make money, but you also make films to just remember forever. And and that is one of those films, and and that's the love of filmmaking, and and that was a brave film for Fox at the time because you know sure was. those films traditionally sank. Yes, yes, and you know, well, you we're all better for it. Like we're all blessed that that you guys did it. You know, that's that's the other magical thing about it is when people get a chance to do those and they pour everything into it, it becomes this little gem that kind yeah. of exists amidst everything else. No, exactly. And they're the films that have the legs that you can watch. There's only, oh, well, there's not a handful, but there's only so many films that you can literally, that film's a bastard because if I walk by (laughs) 
and I'm saying the hotel at midnight and I can't sleep in London and Master and Commander's on. I just glance at it and I go, oh, big mistake. And then I walk it to the end. Even you, you've probably seen it more than anybody, right? I cannot help myself. I just, I just start what. I start watching it and I'm like, I'm going to turn it off. And then I realize there's the end credits and it's now two o'clock in the morning <laughs> and I have to get up in five hours. But that's oh, a yeah. joy and, you know, a great film. And it's Christmas time and I'm enjoying watching a holiday period. I'm enjoying watching all these old films that I love, you know, it's so, it's so cool. And then slipping the African queen in there the other night. Yeah. That's a great movie. Yeah. Do you take, when you yeah. watch, I mean, you watch the old films you love out of inspiration or, or just you oh, love just them, joy. but just yeah. Joy. It's funny because the old films, the pace and the rhythm really doesn't translate to a modern Yes. Way. And I get my daughter, I, who's here at the moment is 25 and she hadn't seen the African queen and she was just loving it. And I'm looking really? at her going, but because it's a good, it's a not yeah. good great film it, it is yes i was thinking how alien it must seem to someone of that age and yet as it's playing out you know someone who's grown up on much faster paced big cg you know there's shots in the african queen i don't know if you remember where there's oh yeah a little boat going down yes a, a or the rear projection when they're yeah. on the rapids there's a lot of yeah. it it's a lot yes. of it you look at it and you go oh yeah it's a bit hokey but yeah it was cutting edge at the time, and um, but the characters drove through all of that. And yes, you know, there's that. Those are great films. And yes, I have younger kids, and I always wonder if because I want to ask you too about that. As pacing evolves, do you feel a pressure to evolve the pacing of your of your edits? Like because you're right, like the way you could pace a movie in the 1950s was different. The way a plot moved, the way yeah. subplots existed. Now it seems like filmmakers have to kind of, you've been at this long enough that you've seen a change. You know, now there's the TikToks and that sort of thing. So do you change it or do you just kind of stick with what your instincts are and maybe your instincts have changed? I, I think the materials speak for themselves. There's, a, there's an inherent rhythm in a film that's part of the shooting process and part of the writing and the directing and the mm. performance that I don't really think of pacing other than just what's appropriate. And, for example, Empire of Light is paced at ex what I consider to be the right pace for the movie, whereas, yeah. you know, other films have to have a faster pace or a yeah. or whatever. The wonderful thing is if... You've, I, I don't know, I, I often say to people, you know, I've watched a couple of 90-minute films that feel like three hours and a yes. couple of three-hour films that feel like 90 minutes. It's yes. the engagement, it's the enjoyment. A film is as long as it, as it sustains and it's good and the job of an editor is to not go past that point and preferably not go before that point because I've also seen versions of films that I've worked on where we've taken it to the bone and realized that the film is a lesser film. It's ticked more boxes, but it's shit. So yeah. then you, if you've got control, you can then put it back together again and go, okay, that is too lean. 
that's too fat. This is just right. And yeah, part of the process. They have a germane pacing that you try to follow to, to, to accomplish what they're trying to do. Yeah, yeah. And when you tighten something up, because a lot of films, you know, come in, you know, some of the bigger ones can be hard to get down to an appropriate length. And appropriate, I mean, you just know it when you're in the cinema and you get to that point where you really are starting to flex your back and look at the <laughs> yeah. screen, look yeah. at your watch and think to yourself, and I won't name names, but there has been <laughs> films where 45 minutes from the end, I'm going, please, God, end. Yeah, yes, because yes. You've done the business and now you're really stretching my friendship because <laughs> yeah. they're not doing anything other than not understanding how to end your own movie. And it just yes. goes on and on and on and on. And then you finally get to the end and go, I've learned nothing since that 45 minutes has passed. Yes. But it's a challenge because they become, there's all the money invested in all the things that were shot and all the intention behind it, right? So then there's a certain attachment, there's notes. And like you said, it can be hard, right? No, it can be hard and people get resistive to shortening movies. And, and as I said, the cheap answer to a, when you show a movie to people is like, oh, I think it'd be better if it was shorter. Yeah. Like, I said, oh, that's an, and you feel like oh, that is a genius statement. You mean shorter? <laughs> One minute, 30 minutes, <laughs> you like it shorter, but they just feel inherently that the movie right. will be better. It's a bit shorter. And it's like... <laughs> uh, it's the weirdest comment for an editor to consider because shorter could mean a trillion things. It could mean oh, yeah, shaving yeah. a little off of a certain pause here or like shorter yeah. where and how is such a fat... Yeah, it oh, could well, lose 40 minutes. Where? <laughs> how? <laughs> Being read notes from a audience screening where they say, you know, the end seemed long, and and I keep explaining that if the end seems long, your problem's probably in the second act. Right. It's by the time you feel something is long, you've been preloaded with too much of something, and so yes. the last part, which is maybe the pivotal part of the film, is playing long to you. You can't, you know. I think Peter Weir once said to me, it was great. He said, you know, it's interesting what audiences have to say, but they can't fix your film. Right. And, you know, the most embarrassing thing is he hearing people talk about something and, you know, the focus group said as if it's a golden bullet. And it's like, it's not. It's just one person said something that resonated with ideas that are lying in the back of your head. It's but like you have to... You, you have to diagnose whatever they're talking about. It's not the answer. It's just some symptom oh. of something else, right? Oh, it's like a car would be quieter without an engine, but it's not much use. <laughs> right. <laughs> yes, I like that one. Well, thank you so much for your time today. It's been really oh. fun talking to you about this. And tell Peter later that, again, Master and Commander is, is beautiful and we all want more whenever you guys are ready. <laughs> okay, cool. All right. Very nice to talk to you. And thank you, uh, Lee. Have a, great, have a great evening. Thank you so much, Lee, for coming on the podcast. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Um, yeah, I mean, I, we talked about it at length, but Master and Commander is such a great gem of a movie from a different time. And it's so cool to hear from somebody who was inside the process talk about, oh yeah, we all know that about that movie. 
And how often I don't, it's not often that I get to talk to somebody who will talk about rewatching something they worked on over and over again anytime because it has that pull. So it's kind of cool how sometimes the sum of its parts don't even add up to what the thing ends up being. It has a life of its own and, and its own special meaning. And the movie was not recognized in all the ways so many of his other films have been, but it stands out. And I think that also is kind of important and fascinating that movies have their own lives and sometimes it's not conventional success. The making back what they cost or more or awards or any of that that defines it or their legacy. Anyway, thanks so much for listening. Be sure to head over to nofilmschool.com. You can read all about filmmaking, tech, tools, tips, education, news, and more. Be sure to like, rate, and subscribe to this podcast and let us know what you think. We release interviews every week. We also have our weekly roundup show where we will answer your questions. Send your questions to editor at nofilmschool.com and we will answer them. Thanks so much for listening. Mm-hmm.